Our reading today is from Matthew's Gospel. We'll be starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, 1 to 23, and then over the page, verses 31 to 35. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Over the page, verse 31. 
he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is God's word. I don't know what you get up to on uh, New Year's Day. A famous New Year's Day was uh, January the 1st, 1962. One of those ones that uh, has gone down in history. That was the day that the, the Beatles had their first British audition with uh, Decca Records, uh, the record company. And they went in on the 1st of January, 1962, recorded 15 songs uh, for the company, and uh, went away for a few days. And what would the result be? And uh, the, the letter came through to their management a few days later, we're afraid to say that, um, and it had this famous line in it, we're afraid to say, guitar groups are on the way out, the Beatles have no future in show business. And then, of course, 115 million album sales later, that looks slightly foolish, or a premature decision upon them. And uh, no one actually is willing to accept responsibility for that decision. No one said, yeah, look, that was me, I did that, I turned them down. It's just a corporate world, it, it happens somewhere. But that was a foolish decision. And yet, at the time, apparently, uh, back in 1962, that was an easy-ish mistake to make. I mean, their first audition, they're all a bit nervous. These are the days when they had the slightly ropey drummer before Ringo Starr uh, joined the gang uh, to replace him. And so perhaps it's forgivable for looking upon them in the 1st of January 1962 and saying they're not much, they're not great. And you never would have guessed that... By the end of the decade, enormous, largest selling pop group, of course, uh, throughout the whole of history. So perhaps a forgivable mistake. Now, when we come to these two parables today, these the the mustard seed and uh, the yeast, it's the same sort of issue here. Because Jesus is making the point that his kingdom, in its origin, it looks a little pathetic, feeble. It has an inauspicious beginning. But its conclusion will be glorious. So don't just look at the beginning. Don't look at the frailty of the kingdom and forget what Jesus promises, that in its conclusion, at the end of history, it will be absolutely glorious and visibly so. So it's fairly straightforward, these uh, couple of parables. Uh, Verses 31 to 35, the kingdom of God, it starts feebly but concludes gloriously. It's not complicated. But I'm still going to take a long time to say just that. Okay. Now, this is our last week then in chapter 13. So there's one or two other things to say. Um, if you've been here at all over the month, there, there's eight parables we've looked at. Uh, these are the last two that Jesus tells all about his kingdom. And uh, we looked uh, at the beginning, the first week. These parables, they have two tasks to them. 
Jesus has explained that when he teaches in these stories or parables, they're designed to both give and take away. So we, uh, Barbara brilliantly read it uh, a moment ago, but just turn back a page to verses 11 and 12. Really, Jesus here is explaining what's going on when he teaches in parables. Uh, The disciples, verse 10 of chapter 13, come to him and say, why do you speak in parables? And he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. He'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have... Even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak in parables, to give and to take. So if it's not too irreverent to say, and it might might be, so forgive me for this, but Jesus teaching in parables or parables, they're a little like a bottle of wine. You know, alcohol is essentially a mood continuance drug. So you pop open a bottle of of wine when you're in a good mood and woo, you get a little bit giddy and enjoy yourself. But you pop open a bottle of wine when you're feeling morose and you just go down and down and down and drown your sorrows. It continues or exaggerates the mood you're in. That's what alcohol does. And Jesus says parables are a bit like that. If you have faith in him, Jesus Christ, you'll hear it You'll hear the parable and you think, yeah, okay, I get that, and it'll expand your faith. If you're hostile to him, the parable will just be confusing. It'll take away whatever knowledge you have. They're designed. It's deliberate, says Jesus. That's why I use these stories to both give knowledge but take it away at the same time. Surprising, perhaps, that he would do such a thing. You just uh, let me show, show you how this uh, pans out, even in the chapter. So you get the uh, uh, the crowds. Well, they're there, but they don't really make enormous progress. It's really only the disciples who, in verse thirty-six, come and say, "Look, we need more help. We need more help here." Or even Jesus uh, further explains what he's doing. Look at his prediction of what he's doing in uh, verse fourteen. Here's the negative of what he's doing. First of all. So chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus says, In them, that's the crowds around, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And this is what Isaiah was told. He'd have to stand up and preach. If you're a preacher, this is not a great message, okay? God says to Isaiah, stand up and tell the people in your day, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. Brilliant. What a job to stand up and say, I've got a message for you, and you're not going to understand any of it, okay? Are you ready? That's what Isaiah was told to do. And Jesus says just the same thing was happening in his day. As he taught in parables, people would hear his words and just walk away. Why is that? Well, verse 15, for because this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. A picture of someone really, uh, uh, really advanced in age. What? What? Barely, barely hear, young man. And they ask you to speak up. But then deliberately they've closed their eyes. Do you want, oh, I'm not watching this. So Jesus says, In Isaiah's day, in his day, there'll be people who have hardened their hearts, who aren't really interested in Jesus Christ. 
And when they, we, hear his words, it'll just exacerbate that further. This way, uh, when I was younger, I remember one situation being at a friend's house, and a friend's name was Neil. And Neil had, um, uh, I can't quote, quite 12 years old, something like that. Neil had been playing with a penknife, and uh, uh, parents had bought a new sofa about a month earlier. Neil was showing off with his penknife. Rip! Tearing the new sofa. Oh, dear. Now, um, father comes into the room, sees the rip. Neil, did you rip that sofa? No. No, not me. No, he's there with penknife. It's not... Neil, did you rip that sofa? No. That's one week's pocket money you've lost. Let me ask you that again. Neil, did you rip that sofa? No. Two weeks' pocket money you've just lost. Neil, did you rip that sofa? No. Three weeks' pocket money. You can see how this progressed. It went on. Did you rip that sofa? No. That is 12 weeks <laughs> that you've lost. Now, there's nothing unreasonable about that father's words. He's just trying to, once says, teach his son, take responsibility. Nothing unreasonable, entirely fair, just, kind almost words. He's trying to encourage his son to be honest. But the words hardened Neil's heart. He just became more determined and entrenched. Didn't do him much good. I mean, three months later, still didn't do him any good. You see, entirely reasonable words hardened him. And Jesus says that happens with his parables. People hear them and just don't like it. So on one hand, the parables will take away or harden people's hearts. But on the other side, we had read just at the end of our reading today, verses 34 and 35. Here's the other side. Jesus gives with the parables as well. So verse 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. Why? Well, in this way, so was fulfilled what was spoken uh, by the psalmist. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus said, yeah, just, just like back in Psalm 78, I'll tell you things that no one's ever known before. The truths that were hidden. I'm going to draw back the curtain and you can see them now. He's teaching gives. And it takes away. That's what the parables are doing throughout this chapter. Okay, with that in mind, what have we looked at over the last few weeks? We've looked, um, uh, first week we looked at the reaction to the kingdom, the parable of the soils, the delay of the kingdom, the parable of the weeds, the value of the kingdom last week, those parables of the, uh, the treasure or the pearl. Today then is the surprising size of the kingdom. And as I say, it's not tricky. It starts feebly, but concludes gloriously. Let's jump in. Uh, so we're looking really at these verses 31 to 35. So he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now the point about the mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, verse 32, it is the smallest of all your seeds. Now, um, can you see I have in my hand a mustard seed? Actually, I don't. But I might as well. I could have just lied to you. Because obviously they're so small, you wouldn't have known. And I, did, I really, yesterday, my one job was to go and find a mustard seed, but I couldn't. And I did worry about, I thought I'd go to the whole grain mustard and scrape it, but I couldn't be bothered. Um, anyway, it's tiny. The whole point is tiny. Mustard seeds are tiny. Most of you, if you, I don't know if it's an international thing, but most English school children, somewhere around the age of six, 
bring home mustard seeds and plant them with cress. Do you remember doing that? It's bizarre. I don't know why we did that. Um, sort of cultural. No one else seems to have done that. But tiny, tiny seeds, that's the point. Mustard seeds are tiny, the smallest of any seed then, and still a tiny seed today, tiny. In a similar way, yeast, in verse 33, is tiny and unimpressive. However many years ago, decade ago or more, uh, on our wedding list when we got married, we had a bread maker. Mmm, impressive machine. I've seen other people having bread makers. Lovely smells, marvellous. And uh, so, you know, this comes the first time you sort of do the recipe together. And I remember Kerry, my wife, had made bread successfully a number of times. My turn to use the bread maker. And obviously, I'm very diligent following the recipes, you know, weighing the flour and everything. I didn't want to get it wrong. But I remember vividly, yeast. Well, that can't be enough. That's, that's a pathetic amount. What's this sort of, that's not gonna, and, um, being a little generous, you know, you flick it on overnight and you wake up to the, the glorious smell of bread. And as I wandered it into the kitchen, there's just this dough gunked all over the machine. The machine never quite worked again as this had sort of gone into the motor and everything had, um, ruined, ruined, ruined. That's the point, isn't it? Tiny. Tiny. It's the point of both of these. A mustard seed, a grain of yeast, unimpressive. You know, for those with children or grandchildren or, or nephews and nieces, on Christmas Day, here's a present for you. What is it? A mustard seed. That's not going to produce a whole lot of excitement. Unimpressive. That's the point. Now, Jesus here is speaking to a, a, an audience, uh, overwhelmingly a Jewish audience. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Now, if you're an Old Test, if you're a Jew with an Old Testament background, that has a lot of positive baggage to come with it. The kingdom of God, we know that. We know all the promises of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. It's going to be magnificent. The king will triumph over all. You know, Psalm 72, he'll reign over all with righteousness and justice, and the nations will bring their treasures to him. Brilliant, the kingdom. Jesus says, I'm here, the king of the kingdom. And everyone looks on and says, well, you're pretty unimpressive. Where's your army? Where's your triumph? See, he's teaching them this. Yes, the kingdom of heaven, it starts feebly, a tiny mustard seed, a woman baking bread, very unimpressive images, everyday dull activities. Of course, historically, that's true. The, uh, the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ, it begins with him and this ragtag bunch of disciples who all abandon him. Very unimpressive, very feeble beginning. Begins feebly, but concludes gloriously. Now, that's the main point of both these parables. The contrast between the feeble beginning and the glorious conclusion, that's the point. So verse 32, the mustard seed, though the smallest, when it grows... It's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Well, I mean, not literally true. I mean, a mustard seed, it, it can grow 12, 15 feet, feet a, a mustard plant, but it's never the largest, literally. I mean, Jesus' point is between the tiny origin and a very impressive plant. If I was able to conjure up a, you know, a little mustard seed in a fully grown tree about the size of the organ, something like that. Oh, okay, yes, it, there's a difference, there's a contrast, I see that. 
That's Jesus' point. It's not literally true. But that's the contrast. Begins feebly, concludes impressively. This little throwaway line that the, uh, the birds of the air will come and perch in its branches. Again, some would have noticed this. This is a, a fairly common Old Testament picture. So when birds come and nest in branches, well, in, um, in Ezekiel 31, God says, the, the empire of the Assyrians, the superpower of the day, it is a mighty cedar tree that the birds come and make their nests in. It is the empire that dominates all other nations. That's the point in Ezekiel 31. Or in Daniel 4. The empire of Babylon, the superpower of its day, is a mighty cedar tree that the birds come and make their nests in. That is, as it's explained there, it's the big empire that dominates the world. I think Jesus' point here is saying, Those kingdoms, remember the Old Testament, Assyria dominated everything, then collapsed. Babylon dominated everything, then collapsed. Well, my kingdom will come and dominate everything. It will be the the obvious power in the world. That's his point here. Jesus predicting. It'll start with you hapless lot. It'll culminate in people all over the world putting their faith in me embracing my kingdom. It'll conclude gloriously, he says. Now, the yeast makes the same fundamental point, feeble beginning, glorious conclusion. But I think there might be a difference between the two. Whereas the mustard seed grows extensively, the, um, the yeast, it, it pervades intensively. You know how yeast works, you sort of knead it, well, I don't really know, but you knead it all in and it, it, it goes all the way through. It changes everything. The point here is not so much, and she makes the largest loaf of bread in the world ever, but her, the point is it just pervades, gets into everything. This woman takes a large amount of flour, I think the footnote tells you, it's a 22 litres, something like that, but enough flour for maybe a hundred people to eat from. And this tiny amount of yeast, it pervades the whole of the dough. So again, Jesus' point. Look, there have been many empires throughout history. Impressive, physically impressive empires, but they don't transform people. They don't really change individuals. They don't pervasively invade their lives. So yes, you could have been around and uh, your, your little town... Uh, captured by the Babylonian Empire or the Roman Empire or your nation invaded by the British Empire. I mean, all very impressive when you look at the maps throughout history. Very impressive. But they didn't change the lives of individuals. No one was invaded by an empire and said, oh, Julius Caesar, I'll do anything for you now, not voluntarily. Whereas the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it changes people. So the kingdom, it starts feebly, it concludes gloriously, both in its size, both in its power to change. Three little implications of that before we finish. The first would be this, I think. Don't be swayed by size. Don't be swayed by size. For those first disciples, very easy to give up on Jesus Christ. 
the 12, the inner circle. What are we told? 120 following him uh, by the time of his resurrection. Huge crowds, but only these small numbers following him. Very easy. You look back at those Old Testament promises and think, they're brilliant. This is unimpressive. God's kingdom was, God's king was meant to usher in some sort of golden age. And what have we got here? Not a lot. Jesus' point is, don't judge the kingdom by its size. And we need to hear that. Both in a secular sense and in a church sense, I think. Don't judge the kingdom by its size. So very easy to look around our world at the, the kingdoms either as nations or or systems, look around at the coming kingdoms of history, the BRICS, China, very impressive. Or you could look around a, a sector, you could look around a financial sector in London. As you wander through the city and, and the shard goes up and you can be in awe of the glass and the steel, very impressive. And Jesus is just, don't be impressed. Don't don't be too impressed by size. Oh, but they're so powerful. Nothing will ever upset this system. Well, look, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. The Roman Empire in Jesus' day, he never said to anyone, don't take the Romans seriously. They're very real. They've got swords and spears. Don't mess with them. But do be aware, it'll fall. And there'll be the next empire. And I don't, you know, I'm not making any great huge predictions here, but presumably Jesus could say equally to us, a financial superpower, or even a whole financial system. It's very real. At our point, at your point in history, it's got swords, it's got spears, it's got influence, but it rises and falls. And in a thousand years' time, don't be too impressed. Don't be very impressed by size. Not in the um, not in the secular sphere, but also, I guess, in, in a in a spiritual or, or church sphere, we could easily be hypnotised by supersize. You know, the big is good. Bigger is always better. Slicker is always more spectacular. Volume is always more virtuous. We can just be impressed by those things. And of course, on that account, Jesus is a failure because he dies with only two people with him, and one of them's not really with him. He dies. What a failure. Abandoned by everyone. Very unimpressive. Don't mishear me. There's nothing inherently virtuous about small. That's not the point. But we need to be careful about how we make our assessments. What is impressive, spiritually speaking? Think of some of our mission partners. So, uh, the, the two churches we support in Dagenham, both of them have uh, ministers that have been there for about 20 years, uh, Mike and Simon, and their churches have not really grown, not massively, not, fit, not in size, not in number in 20 years. So no one really is impressed by them. They're not the big conference speakers, these sort of things, because you have to have a church of at least a 1,000 plus, you know, to be impressive, but those guys, they've just been at it for years and years, faithfully explaining the message of Jesus Christ for years. They have seen individuals' lives completely transformed and changed. But in a worldly sense, they're not impressive. 
But what would God's verdict be? So we need to be wary. Don't be overswayed by size. It's funny sometimes when you, uh, mission partners come back and you go out and have a meal or something and catch up with folk. And uh, you get chatting to them and they'll say, do you know what, it's very tempting when you're stuck out in, in Madagascar or, or wherever it may be, or even in Paris and you're trying to plant a church. It's very tempting when you write home your monthly letter to exaggerate what's taking place. Yeah, we've seen loads of things happen. Yeah, people's lives have been changed. Because you think, well, otherwise, people back home in the UK who support us financially, they won't be impressed. They might be a bit discouraged and give up on supporting us. It's a really big temptation, they'll say. But gosh, if they're there and faithfully teaching the gospel in a hard place, so what with results? If you, if you were results-driven in a church, we never would have backed Isaiah. No good that God said to him, Isaiah, your job, your job is to, say, is to stand up and tell people you're not going to understand anything I say. No, you would never have backed Isaiah financially or practically. You wouldn't have prayed for him. You wouldn't have done for Jesus. I mean, because he fails. He just looks, you know, oh, well, it looked good for a while, but let's withdraw our funding from Jesus Christ Ministries Incorporated because it doesn't look like it's going so well. We need to be careful. Don't be swayed by size. Because often the kingdom, it begins feebly. It concludes gloriously, but in this life? There's a sense of which that that across across the world, the kingdom of God is, if I don't want to mix metaphors too badly, but it is a bit like the sea. It goes out and it comes in. Not that the sea gets bigger or gets smaller particularly. It just ebbs and flows. So as uh, we had prayed for, in, in our part of Europe, where we're living, lots of people... Very, you know, not particularly interested. Is the kingdom of God shrinking? No, no, it's certainly not. At this moment in time, the tide has gone out a little bit. In other parts of the world, the tide is very much in. So across the world, it's growing. But, look, it starts feebly, it concludes gloriously. Don't be swayed by size. Second little thing, I think, what's the task for us? The task for us, then, will be to scatter the seed. Second thing, then, don't scatter the seed. That is the whole implication or the wider implication of the whole of chapter 13. The chief metaphor you get here is plant seed. That's an overwhelming metaphor of the whole chapter. Look, the Lord will determine whether the message of the kingdom is given or taken away, but our task is to sow. But the message is pretty feeble, isn't it? To stand up in the houses of parliament to stand up at Mansion House at a big speech and say, the most important thing you need to know is that a man died on a cross for you 2,000 years ago. It's pretty unimpressive, of course. But that message can transform lives in a way that nothing else can. Nothing else can. So let me just, maybe obvious, but remind you, don't lose confidence in the word of God to change people's lives. It starts feebly, it concludes gloriously. Don't lose confidence in that. It's always be that way. Many of you will know, can point to the time, the date in your life when the word of God came and absolutely transformed. Turned your life three, um, 180. It happens, but don't lose confidence. 
I read, um, I read this week a sermon that uh, an old Baptist minister, Charles Spurgeon, had preached on this passage in 1889. He gave a, a sermon just to the Sunday school teachers on this passage in 1889. Let me just read you one, one little paragraph. It seems to me that sowing seed is work found too ordinary for the modern man. He demands new methods. But, beloved, we must not run after vain inventions. Our one business is to sow the word of God in the minds of children. It is yours and mine to teach everybody the simple truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have, perish but have everlasting life. We know nothing else among adults or among children. This one seed, apparently so little, so insignificant, we continue to sow. That opening sentence that was very striking. Sowing seed. It's just too ordinary for the modern mind of 1889. It's very unimpressive in 1889 just to stand up and explain the gospel message of Jesus Christ. People want new things. And the sermon goes on to talk about all the new things that people want. He said, but that won't change anyone's life. It doesn't transform anything. Just keep going. Just keep going. It looks so feeble explaining, just opening a Bible and teaching it to someone and reading it for yourself, so feeble. The conclusion is more magnificent. It's glorious. Keep scattering the seed. Keep scattering, because you never know what the Lord is doing. One of the, 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 the lovely little encouragements that God has given me over the years was this. When I was a school teacher for four years, I taught it in central London, and uh, once or twice a year, I'd always gather a group of a lunchtime of the, the older boys, 16 to 18, and essentially run a Christianity Explore course over uh, half a dozen weeks. And I did that for every year for four years. I know it would vary, maybe just a couple, maybe a dozen boys would come along uh, once or twice a year for four years. I never saw anyone become a Christian in four years. And after four years, I left and um, uh, uh, Went into vocational ministry, having been such a success. No, the um, but uh, and it was just oh, I, I was just sad. I'd never seen any boy at the school become a Christian. About a year later, I was uh, giving a talk at uh, Cambridge University, uh, a bunch of students, and uh, afterwards, up wandered little boy Kellen. He said, "Oh, hello, sir. Do you remember me? Yes, yeah, I remember you. Nice to see you. Yeah. I, I just wanted to come up and, and let you know that." You know, that summer after I left school, I just couldn't get Jesus' words out of my head that you'd gone through over those few weeks. I couldn't get... And so the first week I arrived here in Cambridge, I came along to the Christian Union and said, look, I just need to become a Christian. And you think, oh, brilliant. God, you're very kind in letting me meet this young man again. Because I thought I'd left school and it'd been a waste of time. I'd just been sowing seed for years and nothing ever came of it. Now, he didn't say, oh, and by the way, the other hundred boys in my year group, it happened to them as well. You wouldn't believe it. I, I, I don't know. God just gave me a little encouragement. But you just don't know. Just keep sowing the seed. Just keep sowing the seed. Looks so feeble. Very unimpressive. The conclusion is glorious. Magnificent. Keep scattering the seed. Last little thing. 
So don't be swayed by side. Scatter the seed. Last thing, and once it's the really obvious thing, trust the king. Trust the king. That's the point of the whole chapter, really. Trust the king. The way into the kingdom is through faith in the death and resurrection of the king. That's the way into his kingdom. Just keep trusting that. Jesus says, have you got ears to hear what I'm saying? I know my message sounds feeble. I know that at times the kingdom, it looks feeble compared to the very impressive powers of the world. But you do know that they'll fall. And my kingdom will triumph. It'll be glorious at the end of history. So you could look around now and be discouraged by the church, which is, once says, the, the physical manifestation of God's kingdom. I mean, look at us. We're pretty unimpressive, and we're a pretty small crowd on a Sunday morning. And even other churches, compared to the population, pretty small. Don't be discouraged, he said. It looks feeble. It will be magnificent. You could look at your own life and say, Jesus, this is it, is it? This is me. Gosh, I've got another 40 years of this. Brilliant. Don't be discouraged, he says. Because actually, even now, that the gospel, the message of the kingdom, it can permeate your life. It'll change you. But at the end, at the end, glorious. It looks feeble. It will be glorious. And you'll be glorious in the kingdom, in the new creation. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Be encouraged, says Jesus. Trust me. My kingdom will be magnificently visible. Even if now, it doesn't look too much. But then, glorious. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do want to thank you for the teaching of Jesus. Thank you for its realism, for, gosh, how we need uh, to be reminded of this uh, in our lives and our situation, our setting here today. Thank you that Jesus is very clear. His kingdom starts feebly. It concludes gloriously. And so please, would your word planted in our lives convince us of that, persuade us of that? Would you pervade our lives like the yeast does the whole dough so that increasingly we are encouraged to look for the kingdom, to live for your kingdom? Father, help us above all to look for that day, not despair if the kingdom looks feeble here and now, but know that other kingdoms will rise and fall, but that of the Lord Jesus Christ will not fall and one day will obviously be magnificent and glorious for the whole of eternity. So keep us trusting in that, we pray. Amen.